0: listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are
1: Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudis Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And my favorite fictional robotic companion is Data from Star Trek Next Generation.
0: Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite fictional robotic companion is Marvin, the Paranoid Android from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
2: Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte, and my favorite is R two D two.
3: Kendra Holtmore, PhD candidate at Boston University, yay, and my favorite fictional robot companion is also Data because I just started watching Star Trek and I love
1: him. Resistance is futile. Welcome on board.
0: I don't think she's gotten that far yet. I know, Probably not.
1: But it'll be fun when You'll she get, does. That'll be
0: funny in a couple weeks.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So thank you for that question. I'm glad that we were able to start there. And as we are doing our AI series. And I wanted to to talk about this in a slightly different way than we have been talking about it. So previously, we've talked about transhumanism and cyborgs and really what is the concept. Uh, Last time we talked about this, we really focused on education. And so today, I really wanted to focus our conversation on religion right? What is AI in relation to religion? And that in and of itself is a huge topic. But I want to start with an example um, from my tradition. And this example is the use of ritual of a particular ritual object and how, how it appears. So I'll go into a little bit of detail there. Um, in Judaism, we read the five, the five books of Moses, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from a scroll rather than from a codex form. And the scroll form doesn't have vowels, it doesn't have punctuation marks, doesn't have page numbers, so it can be very complicated to read. And not only that, it's extremely complicated to write, it, it takes a scribe who's working on parchment, which is animal skin, using a quill dipped in special ink, um, writing on this paper, um, and the letters have to be extremely precise and everything, the columns are justified. And if anyone has ever tried to handwrite in justified columns, it, it's so crazy hard. So sometimes the letters look really long, or sometimes the letters are really squished. And it's just, um, it's a very laborious, intensive, um, intensive in terms of time, but intensive also in terms of emotional and and frankly, redundancy. And for a, for a good scribe or for a um, professional scribe, a year to a year and a half is what it takes full time to write a Torah. Um, and then each of the pieces pieces of parchment are stitched together, rolled up, and mazel tov, We have we have a scroll. Um, I don't want to necessarily give an estimate because I don't want to undersell those that are that are paying for this. There, a brand new one is anywhere between forty and eighty thousand dollars. Just to, just to give a yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, well, I guess you're paying
0: the wages for a year wow. for one you're paying, person, right? You're
1: paying the wages. You're also paying, like, parchment is animal skin. Like, that's not cheap. And these use, you know, many, many animals. Um, again, it depends on the size of the parchment and the kind of animal. If you're using, like, uh, goat skin, how many pieces of parchment you can get per goat. Um, like, it's <laughs> it's a lot. Wow. How big
3: is the finished
1: product? So the parchment itself can vary. Um, it's anywhere between, say, eighteen and thirty-six inches tall, um, right? So top to bottom, and of course, there's you know uh, there's borders around it so that you're not just touching the the scroll every time. So eighteen to thirty-six inches. Um, our synagogue is lucky enough to have three scrolls. Um, of various sizes, and then you put them on wooden dowels. You stitch them into wooden dowels and roll them up that way. And so, when you're actually scrolling the scroll, you're using the wooden dowels to move, um, you know, literally go through the parchment that way. And then we, of course, we we make it pretty because um, everything needs jewelry. So we put a beautiful gown on top of it, and we put some um, finishing touches on it, and then the pointer because you're never supposed to actually touch it. Um, And so the thing that you're carrying around, our largest one is about 50 pounds, um, and is over four feet tall, you know, dowel to dowel, is over four mm. feet and over 50 pounds. Um, it's massive. Yeah, they're massive, right? These And no, of course, there are small ones, right? You can get one that's about 12 inches, but they're extremely hard to write, which actually makes the cost go up because like you're doing tiny print then. And, and, and then you also have to
3: buy a magnifying glass to read right. it.
1: <laughs> they're really hard to read because like I said, no vowels, no punctuation, <clears throat> really hard to read.
3: So, gosh, that
1: sounds like an awful lot of work. Can I interrupt? Of course.
2: Is it required? Well, I, maybe requires not the right word, but does every synagogue have one?
1: That is the goal. Yes.
2: Okay, so uh-huh. the goal is for every, but it's not like, there's not anything written anywhere that says for you well, to be. Well, it's pretty synagogu- much,
1: it's pretty much, it's pretty much there. Yeah, it's not that you have to, um, but how do you read from the Torah if you don't have one? Right. I mean you're reading from a codex, a chumash, um a Torah, right, a, a paper Torah, but like if you're gonna do it, like the best you can do is do it well. And so sometimes there's like loans, like, oh, there's a little small synagogue over here that doesn't have one, we'll loan it to you for, you know, thirty years or something. Do
2: you have like are any of those in your office where you are now, or are they oh, all gosh, in no. like the worship space?
1: Oh, they're all in the sanctuary and they're all under a locked cabinet. And they are all there is a fire, a smoke detector inside the ark where we keep them. And the fire department knows um, that that save those like if you're here for a fire, go right there and we'll deal with the rest of the building. Hmm. Like they're really they're that important. Like they are the most important thing um, in the synagogue. So parchment and scribing is expensive and intensive. So the question is, well, then why do it? Right? Like, why have a person do this? We've had printing presses for hundreds of years at this point. And, okay, so you don't want to print the tour because you can't really, it's hard to do printed tour on parchment. Okay, but now we're in the 21st century. In the 21st century, we can have a mechanical hand actually write the Torah, and it can use a parchment, it can use the special ink, and it just, once you program it in there with all the specifications, this AI robot can write the Torah. So why wouldn't we have that? And once you've put in the the capital of uh, programming it, you just... Go, right? You don't have to, you don't have to change it up so many times. You don't have to repay the programmer every time. You just say, nope, we just need more parchment and more ink. Right. So if we're still doing it halakhically, what is the role of the person? What does the person bring to this that a robot can't? Or a and I'm using AI in this a not just a robot, because as I was saying, like they can be different size parchments. The column width can be different. Um, so you have to you have to teach the robot or the robot has to know what, what justification in this, uh, you know, full justified, center justified looks like. And so it has to know looking at the parchment. So it has to learn, not just be programmed. So that's how I'm using AI as opposed to just a robot program. And there's a female scribe which is a whole different category of, you know, uh, egalitarianism and feminism that we won't go into this particular episode. But there's a female scribe, Julia Seltzer, um, who with um, I think it was five other women scribed an entire Torah together. Like each one of them took most of a book. Uh, Deuteronomy is really long. Um, And then they stitched it together. And what she noticed is that their handwriting was different. That someone might have had like a little bit more of a flourish when they made the crown on a letter or a little bit like maybe one looked a little blockier and the other one looked a little bit softer. It looks different and you know the person behind it. And so now you're like, "I, I don't I don't. Study the scribes, but there aren't that many in the world, and there, there haven't been. So, if you know the age and the location of the Torah that you have, you know the person who scribed it. There is a story, there are memories, there is an intention behind it. There is an awareness of what you're doing, and that awareness doesn't exist in AI and robots. There's a prayer in Judaism which says, Thank you, like in the mornings thank you for my soul and thank you for the awareness of my soul and it's that extra step that i think is missing when we're looking at what can ai do as far as religion is concerned so i just wanted to open up with the torah and saying it would be far cheaper And far more accurate if we chose to do this sort of robotic arm AI printing than using a person. But it's not just about the money, right? In religion, it's not just what is the bottom line, right? That's that's one of the things that makes religious organizations different than, you know, other businesses or for-profit centers. And I'm being kind that religions are not for-profit centers and (laughs) and, and, and sort of – being generous to religion as a concept um in those ways that it's not about doing it the cheapest and fastest. So what is it about? So when we look at, again, using the example of writing the Torah, what what is it? Um so that's where I wanted to start. And so that's one one place from my tradition of where AI could be used, but we're choosing not to use it. I'm wondering if there are places that you could see either as an object or as a ritual in and of itself from your traditions um, or your understandings that could or could not be substituted with AI. Hmm.
0: Yeah, so there's a um, a product that you can purchase from the Vatican itself that is basically a Fitbit for your, your rosary.
1: Yes, I saw that.
0: <laughs> Where you... It, it's great because it's got its own little charging station and you pick it up and you make the sign of the cross on it and that activates it. And then it's able to tell by the weighted beads. And for those of you who... Um, maybe aren't as familiar with the rosary has a certain amount of beads. And the the point is to hold a bead while you say a prayer and then move to the next bead while you say a prayer. It's a physical act while you're doing a spiritual act in order to connect the full body, um, to engage all of your senses and to help you keep track of what you're doing while you're doing it. Because like, if you're saying a prayer a number of times in a row, how are you going to keep track? Um, like, you lose track. And you're like, well, I guess I got to start over again or start writing it down or something. So the rosary has long been a helpful tool for people. But in this one, it now syncs up to your phone and can remind you if you haven't been doing your prayers or uh, reward you if you have been doing your prayers. Um, you know, there might be social functions where you can encourage each other. I know that there was... Uh, by the Bible Gateway app introduced a social aspect to it. And then suddenly I started getting notifications like crazy where all of my friends were like, connect with so-and-so on Bible Gateway and share your daily devotional, your practice, your reading. And so then that, now there's this kind of social pressure that now everyone knows what I'm reading. And now I have to make sure I'm reading extra spiritual stuff. <laughs> and... <laughs> Make sure everyone else knows how spiritual I am. And so uh, there are some issues with that, I think, where now Jesus says to practice your religion in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If possible, go into a closet where no one knows you're there. He says that if you are um, fasting not to put on sackcloth and ashes and let everyone know that you're super spiritual, but to put on your Sunday best and act like everything is normal so nobody knows. And so a lot of these—we uh, talked last time about the gamification of education and other things. And so when, when you have sort of the gamification of, of religious practice, then, I don't know, you start to want to show off a little bit or feel that social pressure that— A lot of people left the church because of, you know, but I don't know. I've never used one of these. So maybe they're great. I do love little gadgets.
1: That's fascinating. That's, That's a great word, gadget. Right. It's using tech to encourage a particular practice. And one of the pitfalls, I think, is when we make that practice public. The, the Fitbit idea, right? You can have your own Fitbit and not tell anybody, by the way. <laughs> and you can set your own, you can set your own, um, like, tell it, get up every 10 minutes or get up, you know, 10 minutes every hour or whatever it is. And you don't have to tell people. But then we get that bias built in of whoever is creating the software, whoever is creating the technology, what is their value system, Um, sort of like the, so I didn't, I I never joined the Bible gateway group, um, nor did I join this other one that I'm going to say, Um, covenant eyes, right? Like basically where you can have a person double check your browser history Mm. to make sure that you're staying on the up and up, the accountability of what you're looking at on the internet. And as we all know, the internet was created for porn. So if the internet is created for porn, then your covenant eyes need to make sure you're not doing that. I'm I'm being a little flippant, but maybe not that much. Um, But that then turns into... It could turn into a race of I am holier than thou. Look at look at how much I'm doing and posturing and buckling under peer pressure. And then you're losing that authenticity. And then suddenly it's just besting each other, which kind of goes against most religious tenets from most religions that I'm aware of. Right. Like, look how better I am than you are at at this. Um, But building in that value system. And I think that's. That's the really dark gray area that could get pretty twisted when we look at AI, because at this point, at least, there is not sentience and choice in AI, which means it's all about the person who's programming it and the values that they're using.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting. The examples that we're talking about are um, seem to be examples of what AI takes away from us or from religious traditions. Um, whether that's like authenticity, or um, you know, like not not having a person's story uh, behind, uh, a Torah scroll, but instead it being, you know, a robot that has like standard handwriting and all these things, or, you know, the, the rosary gadget that's, you know, for whatever reason, there's something that we feel is missing from these rituals and relationships. And I like, that all makes a lot of sense to me, but I was really, um, struck by one of the articles that Rachel shared with us um, before our meeting today. And it was um, an, an article in The Atlantic called uh, Funerals for yes. Fallen Robots. <laughs> yes. And Abo. that that piece uh, was just like highlighting the emotional attachment that people have for robots and how we, you know, it, th- the the emphasis here is not so much on like the nature of AI itself. I mean, it is a little bit, but it's more about, I think it's more about like how humans create themselves, like the creation of the self through relationship with objects, which is something we've always done like before robots. But it's so interesting to me because it's like, is that something, is that like the flip side of AI is we gain a lot by having potentially these robots um, or, you know, even if it's just like a gadget, you know, like I definitely have emotional attachments to like random objects, just like little tokens on my desk because of the person who gave it to me. Or, you know, I have like a pouch of these, um, I call them my study tokens, They're just like little random buttons and pins and rocks and little figurines that people have given to me. And I set them around my computer sometimes when I like really need to get in a zone and, you know, they're not robots, but it's like (laughs) this like emotional attachment with these inanimate like metal and rock (laughs) objects on my desk. And I would be so sad if I lost any one of these things. And so I think it's like a very similar kind of relationship that If we look at robots and AI, like we can still form those kinds of attachments and they might even be deeper if AI is mimicking the kinds of like human affect and human thought. Um, And I just think that's so interesting because I, there was a long time where I thought like my gut reaction is that, oh, well, that's still kind of empty though. Like it doesn't mean anything. And then like the older I get and the more I've like thought about this, especially as technology just changes, um, I think that's like, I I think it's really a powerful relationship, even though it's very weird to think about. Um, But like if I had a robot and it was like, you know, R2-D2 or Data or, you know, any any of our like famous robot companions from any fictional universe, yeah, I would want to like protect that robot friend and Mm -hmm. make sure that it was charged every day and make sure that it was like happy in whatever sense that robots can be happy. And I think that that, um, whatever whatever we can say about the realness or not realness of that relationship, I think what's true about it is that it changes who we are. Mm. And it reflects something about who we are and who we are becoming because everything that we have a relationship with in the world plays on... Or, you know, helps to create the virtues that we have, the weaknesses that we have, the the personalities that we have. And I just think that's really cool and really interesting because it doesn't have to just be with humans. And that's always been the case.
0: I, uh, I love that. I think we need to take a second and pour one out for Hitchbot while we're at it. Do you remember Hitchbot? No. So this no. was... A an adorable so too young. little robot from well, too young. It was like the <laughs>
3: 2013. No, Kendra. Kendra. <laughs> Is so, it like a Tamagotchi? I'm, no, I'm in two
0: thousand thirteen. So eight years no. ago. <laughs> These developers in Canada made this robot, and they made it to kind of look junkyard chic, is Mm -hmm. how they called it, where it was cylindrical body, and it's got these, like, pool noodle arms and legs Mm -hmm. and this adorable little face. And the point of it was a social experiment to see if robots could trust humans. Um, So it can't walk. but But it can talk. Mm-hmm. And it was equipped with 3G connection and GPS uh, so that it could update its own social media accounts and it could talk to the people who interacted with it and ask them to hitch a ride to the next place and encourage them to like talk back to it. It had some rudimentary AI so it could communicate with people like a chatbot and people would take pictures with it. It would be such an honor to like stumble upon. Uh, Hitchbot, and you get to update your social media and be like, "I dropped it off here, and now the next person picks it up." It went across Canada three different times, I think. <laughs> it went across Germany and the Netherlands, and then in the, 2000... second, with the
1: second one went across Germany.
0: Okay, but okay. in 2015, it tried to go across the U.S. but got decapitated in Philly <gasps> because because Philly. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Brotherly love. <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> and if you were to ask me, somebody who has lived in Philly and is from South, South Jersey, um, where it would have been killed, I would have told you it would have been Philadelphia.
1: <laughs> also, just, just to add to that, it only its goal was to start in Boston. I remember following this. It, was, it started in Boston and was going to get to San Francisco. It got decapitated in Philly. And the head was never found. Oh my God. Like it didn't even make it. It's not like it started in San Francisco. No, it started in Boston and only got to Philly. If
0: it had made it out of the East Coast, it totally would have gotten there. It would have gotten there. If you can make it out of the East Coast, then you're okay.
1: But. Hitchbot. Hitchbot. I I love what you're saying. Right, like this idea of what is our attachment, both from an emotional standpoint, or excuse me, from an individual standpoint, but then also a cultural, right? Like this poor Hitchbot was totally fine in the Netherlands and Germany and Canada and the U.S. We were like, uh-uh, I don't trust you. Yeah, <laughs> decapitate. Um, wow, like season four sad. of Shield. So um, decapitating things. <laughs> so, but what what does that say about? Us and our relationship, and I think that's also what you were saying, Kendra. Right, this, this funeral for Aibo, A I B O. I might be mispronouncing it, but that's how I would heard it. Um, right, these these robotic dogs, and it's true that even in the military, people that have military um, companions, robotic companions, there's a sadness there. I mean, there was there was a famous movie. It wasn't a robot, um, but. Yeah. Oh, uh, Castaway, mm. right? Tom Hanks and Wilson, the volleyball, right? Mm-hmm. There were, where the I think the movie was quiet for what forty minutes. There was no dialogue or something like that, something crazy like that. And we were all just like Wilson, we like Wilson, and like we were just like sobbing. And we had this <laughs> immense attachment to a movie volleyball. <laughs> 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 it was just, it was so powerful, and that could create. How much all the more so if something has been there watching your back, if something has mm-hmm. been there carrying you on. And so many of us use objects as tools, right, that I don't have a deep attachment to my laptop or to my phone. Like I use them, but I don't have an emotional attachment. My son, um, who's, who's almost seven, has had the same Kindle for, oh, I guess we got him three years ago. And he has an emotional attachment to his Kindle. Like, he cares for it. He makes sure that it's in the right place. He makes sure that it's clean. He's sad when it doesn't work. He makes sure that it's it's charged so that he can carry it with him. Like, it's very different than I need to use this as a tool, right? And so for me, we're able to use AI or technology. We're using those a little interchangeably as an ability to start forming relationships and bonds that teach us about who we are and in religion it's my it's my understanding that one of the things that religion does is teach us and help us with relationships relationships um in in all in all dimensions Um, And and I say that in the, the horizontal, it teaches us how to be in relationship with the world around us and those within the world around us, including ourselves. It is a vertical relationship such that we have a relationship with the past and the future. And it's also the Z-axis relationship, which to me is the divinity or spiritual aspect, right? So if we're on an X, Y, Z axis, the Z axis would be the, the godly aspect, um, or however each religion chooses to understand that which is not known. Um, but it's, it's all relationships as almost um, as a stark difference from facts, and so if AI can teach us those things or teach us how to do those things or encourage those things or grow those things, I think it can be a beautiful relationship. Which is a couple of the other articles that, um, that I'll post in the show notes or I'll, I'll have Zach post in the show notes. Um, so I think that there's beauty in there. What we need to make sure that when we're using them and they're using us, that we recognize their values. And that we trust what's in front of us, and I think that's an important piece that we're not uh, that we haven't fully fully digested. How do we gain this trust? Right. So so Zach brought in the Hitchbot, where it couldn't trust Americans, and Americans couldn't trust it, um, and it is no longer. Right? How do we develop the trust, which is the foundation of relationships?
3: Yeah, and I I think that. Uh... It's interesting to think about the trust that we can develop with these, um, you know, AI, what, whatever technology we're talking about. These emotional attachments and how that's a really different—that's uh, a really different relationship to these objects than talking about whether or not AI and you know future robots will deserve um, rights, um, mm-hmm. which is like really interesting because. I think there's a natural blending of those uh, ideas where over time, if we're treating something like we're in a relationship with it in the same way we would be with a human, um, that conversation to me kind of feels inevitable. I don't know like what the answer will end up being, but, you know, like that's already a conversation of like, Can robots or should robots who are more like android in nature, um, should they be granted citizenship, Uh, which is just like so crazy to think about, but uh, I think is, you know is going to be a, a conversation that's, like, way more prominent, like, way down the line in the future when we do have robots that are a lot more <laughs> like us. But for now, I think it's a lot easier, actually, to ask the question of, like, how can we trust the technology that's in front of us? Because that feels a little bit more manageable, I think.
1: Hmm.
3: Um, still a really hard question because you have to think about the ethics of And the values that go into programming, and that's like a huge debate to have about like the, you know, the cultural code of the robot in front of you and how that conflicts with whoever is using it or interacting with it. Um, So still really uh, difficult, but it's, I think, still maybe a little bit more manageable than talking about Mm. like robot citizenship. (laughs)
0: Have you all heard about what's going on in China with the social credit scores?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, it's so yeah. scary. I want you to a, unpack that
2: for us because that was interesting.
0: A way of, of using AI, especially, to keep humans in line. Um, well, they're it's already scary. pretty well known for their facial recognition mm-hmm. and the fact that there's cameras everywhere and that those cameras are always tracking who you are and where you are and what you're
1: doing. Like, said Right. And said with pride that um, I think it was that once you enter the public sphere, meaning not your own home, within three seconds, it can identify their entire population. Like one point four billion people within three seconds. That is
0: oh, crazy, which sure helped to keep the covid under control. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> also their populace. And so they've been doing these trial runs, um, and some places have adopted them more thoroughly, where they're essentially keeping record of each individual person and giving that person a score based on their trustworthiness. So things that might negatively impact your social credit rating might be things like playing loud music or... Eating food on rapid transit when you're not supposed to or jaywalking or speeding or this is a good one. Making reservations at a restaurant and then not showing up. (gasps) Yeah. Um, Not correctly sorting your recycling. Um, And if your score gets too low. You might be denied things like I I think I read that there was like 80,000 people so far who had not been able to get on uh, trains because Hmm. their social score was too low and they couldn't be trusted on it. And if you want to get out of that, it takes like two to five years to get out of that. Or you can work really hard to raise your score. By doing things like donating to charity or giving blood or volunteering or
2: praising the government on social media. and That one was the...
1: Oh, man.
2: I feel like tens of millions of Americans would have been screwed during the last administration. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So, like, if you want good things, like,
0: um, you know, a line of credit to buy a house or... Uh, favorable terms on loans, or or getting a, a reservation ticket, at a restaurant, <laughs> or getting a reservation at a restaurant. Like you'd better make sure that your social uh, social score is high. And this is, I mean, this is also a, a society that has is a shame uh, shame and honor based society, and so kind of taking advantage of that um, in order to control the populace using opaque artificial intelligence. Like no nobody, this is not open source data. <laughs> and this is stuff that's tracking your every single movement. So you might be out um, walking down the street somewhere and you reach in your pocket to get your phone and a receipt falls out your pocket and you get docked for littering because it knows what you just did and it was watching you. And supporters of this um, say that this is going to be a way of creating a utopian society where like plenty of people will just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Do these people not read dystopian
3: literature? Come on. (laughs) It's China. They don't have it.
0: Yeah. It's not in. Uh, in... Like (laughs) this will finally do what religion failed to do in keeping the people in line and making a morally just society because it offers punishments that are immediate and felt instead of like yeah. afterlife based.
1: Yeah, and daily and daily life impactful. Mm-hmm. Right, not just you know, eventually one day this'll come back to bite you in the tokus, but like <laughs> oh, I can't get on the bus today. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that has impacted my life. And this is like I'm wondering, did they write or did they take notes from the good place? <laughs> like <laughs> where this this feels this feels very much like the scores that people are getting based on their activities. And one of the things that I am troubled by in this, just one of very many things <laughs> I am troubled by with this whole scenario is we don't actually know the end result of a single action. So let's just take the littering on, on the face of it. That seems like a pretty, like, We'd all kind of get behind that, right? Like you don't yeah. want to litter. Like I'm I'm not a fan of littering and we talk about it and and we don't want to do it. And sometimes Adrian Isle and, you know, his friends will go pick up the litter that we find in the in the park. Right? Littering? I'm I'm totally behind that. In this particular society, as far as I've read, and I I, I could be corrected, please, um, having clean streets is really important. Right, that mm-hmm. there's, there is a value in the, in the culture of having clean public spaces. In order to have clean public spaces, somebody has to do that job. So if somebody accidentally litters and then they get docked for it, then people stop littering. How many jobs did that cost? Right? There was no intent behind the littering. Right? But the accidental littering or the wind took it away, right? how many jobs did that cost? And what is the life? What is the life like for those people whose job was to literally be a human street sweeper? And and those ramifications that we're not able to see the human cost of again minus the whole dystopian issue, but that to be docked for something that seems dockable, but we don't know where this where this is going. Uh, that's where I'm uncomfortable with this. Like, how far are we going?
3: Oh. But on the other hand, maybe we should just let the robots take all of our jobs so that we can just focus on our hobbies and have universal basic income. Am I right? (laughs) Totally right. I just want to start doing more cross-stitching. So, yes, I am 100% on board with just take my job. Right. But but we got to have the infrastructure like you're right. We, but, that, but, but, that's not where we are right now. But I hope one day we can all just have cool. our hobbies and money and just like live our lives because work shouldn't be all. Of I our mean, identity.
0: according to willrobotstakemyjob.com, I'm only 0.8 <laughs> percent likely yeah. that yeah, it, me too. clergy will be replaced by AI and robots.
1: Right. And we have seen that so very clearly in this last year. Because the people that have been in hospitals or have died or have had a funeral or have had any sort of life cycle moment in which they want their clergy there in addition to whatever worship we have on the weeks. There's no comparison in holding someone's hand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? That, Yeah, it'd be great if a robot did my job, but I don't think a robot could do my job. Right? Because there's something about the touch. There's something about the human connection. There's something about the look in a person's eyes that says, I see you and I empathize with whatever you're going through. That we haven't gotten there yet with AI. And while the technical aspects of most of our jobs could be done, I think even the jobs where it's a 95% your job could be done by AI or a robot. It's not going to be a healthy thing. Because where are we getting those relationships? Sorry, Ian. I'm talking a lot No, it's okay.
2: It just makes me think about like, you know, if we think about, so instead of, I'm just, you know, a thought experiment, I guess, on what are the things in our, so not necessarily to take our entire job. Right, but what are the things within our particular professions that if robots or AI took over that aspect of the profession, what would it free us up to do more of
1: beautiful our what hobbies. are some things
2: we could do more <laughs> still still with your profession obviously Andrew. yes hobbies definitely but like so for me and I know we brought something in the last episode for me especially it's like grading for example you know if if there were robots or, you know, something like that, that could, I mean, obviously it's easier now than it used to be because of technology, but if there was a way where it could be fully programmed to do all of that for me, then what, there are other, I'm certain that there, it would give me time to do other things.
1: Really? Okay. I'm going to push you on that one a little bit. Um, And the reason I say that, barring Scantron tests, which are stupid. No, I don't give this. Good, um, sorry for those that I'm offending that do um, I feel like you get to know your student based on the answers they give in the questions mm-hmm. that you're losing something when you don't grade their papers you're losing how they're thinking you're losing you know what what creativity are they coming up with um and so. So I would say if you're not doing that, you're not seeing the individual, what are if if that part is taken away by robots, which I'm not quite sure how you would do that equitably. I would have to be a pretty smart robot uh, to try to grade individual questions that aren't Scantron based or that multiple choice. How else would you then get to know the students like that to me is then where you spend the time. In getting to know, like having coffee shop hour, having, you know, let's sit down and and chat for 20 minutes just because like the 20 minutes I would have spent grading your essays. Now let's just talk about them. But I don't, I don't know how you could equitably do that, honestly.
2: And also Also, what what I'm curious about is though, that to me is still us thinking in the same way that things are done now. Like I'm almost pushing us to think, what other avenues could it open mm. if some skill, some things like that, that can become very time consuming. I'm not saying all grading. Like there are definitely parts that I would still need to do as the human, but I think there are some things that may make it where I could end up spending more time on other tasks and other ways of getting to know students and connecting with them, mm-hmm. so, potentially even more fully.
1: Yeah. So Than
2: by I'm sorry, all the grading. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, like, are there ways within your professions that there are some mundane things that you're just like, you know what? If I could get rid of that, imagine I would have more time on this.
1: You know what? I got to say, I have predict a text set up on my Gmail. And... I have had it set up on my like, I've been using the same Gmail account for work for six years. Um, I'm pretty like I I change it up. I don't I don't write the same exact same thing every time. But I have a particular way of talking in email. Um, I have a particular rabbinic voice or a style that's in email. Just like when you he- – if any of you were to ever talk to me on the phone and, and I pick up and I say, hello, this is Rabbi Jackson, you hear my voice go up by about half an octave. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. Um, so I have that same sort of uh, tick quality characteristic in my email. And so now when I'm writing an email – it will, the predicted text will have almost the entire sentence written if I write one or two words. And I go, yeah, that's what I want. Tab, tab, tab. And next thing I know, my entire email is written in two minutes rather than six. And so as a person who writes anywhere between 20 and 50 emails, writes 20 to 50 emails a day, that's, that's been helpful, right it's it's freed me up to have the conversation with someone in person
0: i think a database that would help keep track of who is sick who is uh, well who is recovered and who's related to who would be really helpful
1: oh i have um, that for you i can send you the link
0: oh uh, well so one that that can also like predict things i'm thinking ai wise mm-hmm. where Like, I know that this person has this condition, this condition, and has been in the hospital this amount of time, this amount of time, and then so you might wanna check in on this person at this time. You know, have you talked with so-and-so lately? They haven't been in church. Oh, yeah, okay, that's a good point. There's probably something going on. Because like, my mind personally doesn't work like that. I cannot hold on to details about individual Mm -hmm. people, especially when I have that many people. where I think like, oh, I haven't seen that person in six weeks because I've been with the other people and I haven't thought about it. Or, oh, yeah, that's right. They did get COVID last month and I never checked back in on them. I wonder how they're doing now. Like that kind of a thing Um, connected with the local hospitals, Mm -hmm. which could... Uh, update me on people's medical conditions, as well as like death of relatives who maybe aren't members of my church. Like it's scanning through the obituaries of the local papers to be like, oh, well, I have this member whose uncle just died, but they're not, the uncle's not a member of my church. And so now I know that maybe I should reach out to this person. Like that That's kind wonderful. of assistance in pastoral care would be really helpful because nine mm-hmm. times out of 10, I miss it. And then I realize after the fact that I could have been a comforting presence in that moment,
1: although I will just say I do have an awesome pastoral care website that I use, and it's it's super helpful it's not AI but it's really amazing to help me to help me do those exact same to do those things again it doesn't connect to the hospitals it doesn't it doesn't scan obituaries <laughs> but it, it helps. It's my own personal it's my own personal pastoral care assistant.
0: Well we have a lot of clergy who listen. What's the website?
1: It's called Notebird. N-O-T-E-B-I-R-D. Notebird. And it is awesome. And I'm happy okay. to share this and happy to be a poster child. No, they're not paying me for any reason. Um I just love it.
0: But they could if you're <laughs> listening, Notebird.
1: <laughs> um mm-hmm. really. And and they are um they're totally non-denominational. Like they they listen to the Jews and they put stuff in there for the Jews, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in there for Christians too. Like I haven't, you know, communion wise. I didn't. And look at all the Christian stuff because I don't need to. Um, and they're extremely responsive and wonderful, and I could just like sing their praises all day long. Um, hmm. So I think we're getting there, right? Like yeah. we keep having these these brainstormings, we can get there. And I think. If we're not afraid of it, and I keep going back to what Kendra was saying, right? That that initially we started talking about the drawbacks, and Kendra was like, "Hey, what about all the positives? Like, we, it could be so great. Mm. It would like it would just be wonderful if our values were there, <laughs> right? The value of pastoral care would have to be there.
3: Yeah." And I think, too, like, another way of thinking about, like, how AI would, like, you know, supplement people's jobs, it's not even that, like, all of the things that we do in academia or as clergy, I don't don't really know how AI is going to, like, supplement what any of us do. Besides, like, what we're talking about now with, like, databases, like, technology stuff, sure. But I just think... Like, there are a, a different category of jobs that AI can do so that it, like, frees up people. Like, maybe maybe there will be more people who want to be clergy members or, like, you know, researchers and teachers. And since AI is doing, you know, uh, the jobs that those people might have been doing, now we have all these people who uh, – want to do these jobs, but we don't have to work the whole year. Like maybe we're on a, a half year schedule and then, you know, we switch out and then the robot or not the robot, the the people uh, who would have been doing, I don't know, pick a job. What's a job that maybe AI is going to take over one day? I, I guess we use the idea of like the um, street sweepers. sandwiches mm-hmm. uh, or sandwiches. Yeah. Sandwiches. Uh you know like it just creates an abundance of like time I guess is what it's giving us or like opportunity to do something that you might not have thought you were going to do um yeah. I don't know it just there's there's more ways to think about it than just that like yeah a robot's going to like grade my papers or like sit by someone on their deathbed um because I don't I don't know if like that there's something about that that makes me <laughs> like, ugh, like cringe a little bit, even though that's like also what we're talking about as a potential for being like really cool and Well, good. during COVID,
0: they've had to do that. And uh, there are hospitals that have set up these like iPad robots mm-hmm. that kind of look humanoid, but they have an iPad for a head where you mm-hmm. can connect to people that you know and that you love. Um, there's even some more advanced technology out there that will have a hand on it. And then another hand will be held by your loved one who's maybe in the waiting room. And then, like, oh, the two sense each other cool. and will squeeze
1: cool the other. Cool and sad at the same time.
0: Um, but so, necessary during times like a pandemic. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Totally. But given a normal circumstance, no one would choose that. Right. Right.
1: right. And, you know, what I, what I hear you s- suggesting, Kendra, too, is... Perhaps that technology AI as it gets there again, using them interchangeably allows us to really understand what we want our lives to be, especially as Americans who have been trained and our culture of just high productivity like unbelievably high productivity, that our value is based in what we produce. And then our value as a citizen or as a person is how much effort we put into our company, right? Whatever that as a worker, that's where it lasts. And so if we have the ability to to have our job being done by something else, rather than replacing our job, like finding something else, as Ian was suggesting to do with that time for our job, to say, great, it's done. Now I have time to be me. To actually say it's not – Yes, maybe the average is a forty hour work week, but I don't really know anybody that does that <laughs> like, i don't i don't I don't know of any salaried that's not true. I know of one salaried employee who works for the government frankly um and they're the only ones that I know that's a salaried employee that actually sticks to forty hours um and the only reason I'm using the term salary is because the employer then has to pay per hour, and usually they don't want to pay overtime, <laughs> and so um, they're they're battling this like, well, you then you just have to be extremely highly productive in your hour. So that that's right. why I'm, I'm I'm separating out the hourly versus a salary because the the employer in that case is not willing to pay the the overtime wages often. But, right, the, this forty hour work week and and this idea of. Um, downtime being not a good thing, right? Yeah. I, well, so
2: you think about like the genius time or whatever that um, or whatever it was that Google had, right? Isn't it you know they that they didn't Google Earth like the the idea for Google Earth and the development of Google Earth. What came from someone having that, like didn't they have it as their job? Like twenty percent of the people's time was meant for them to just focus on. Thinking, yeah. and whatever yeah. certain, you wanted to work on, certain engineers.
0: Job. Yeah, they give freedom to. They have like little playrooms, basically, yeah, with little things to mess around with, and they encourage people to do that. And yeah, but that's just for the engineers that are making things.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what I was thinking, so, and this is, I like that you mentioned that, Rachel. That's still part of the job. So I guess for clarification. If there was a way that there uh, that AI could help make some of the tasks of my job easier, right, for me to then go in directions with my job and life that I couldn't have even imagined as a teacher, I would take that.
1: Or just I know Ian. there
2: could be some negatives there, potentially, that, that could be coming, but I would choose to initially focus on what are the things I could gain, like, that would give me the time to, um, not have to worry about, Oh, well, so when I'm uh, recording for this podcast, there are other things in my mind that I'm like, Oh man, I got to get back to that someday. Right. I wouldn't have to worry about that stuff. Right. Yeah. I would have that time and the things. And so what I think about, like within academia, so when we started this, um, the podcast idea and we started running with it and now we're doing it and it's been almost two years and I wouldn't trade for anything. And I'm not, I'm not ready to leave it. I love doing this stuff. Right. One of the thoughts I had to go through my mind was, is how do I write this down to make sure that my, uh, supervisors all the way up the, the chain and academia value it. Mm-hmm. And then you think about, so when you get new leadership and, and they see that I'm riding on these areas that may not be as high research productivity, what does that mean? I don't care because it's doing what I love to do. Right. And I still get to do the other things, too, but that just means that now I'm adding more to my plate, which is fine, but I'm always thinking about when it comes to, like, teachers are their ways, you know, in this field of education that could make it so that we could do some of those other things that people love to do that sometimes we just don't have the time for because of just exhaustion. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think those are the things I would try out and just be like, you know, I'm going to give that a shot. If it doesn't work, doesn't work. I try something different. So... I don't think I would lose uh connection with the students if I had some of those other tasks that were a little bit easier for me to do, at least less time consuming, right? So that, because I, I would use that time to plan for more uh, different types of experiences in the classroom. When I'm thinking yeah. about class stuff, here are some different things I could potentially do in my classroom. Now I'll let me, now i got time to really plan it out. Let me run with it. mm mm-hmm. That's how I would want to approach it. And it's funny, while I was saying that, the AI on my wrist was telling me, <laughs> you look like you need to breathe right now. So I guess my heart rate was going up. <laughs> I, I should think we, we should all breathe right now. Yes, I know. But it says, even a minute of deep breathing can be helpful. It's almost like a, medita- a reminder to meditate. <laughs> hmm.
1: Right. A reminder to to be. And... Hmm. I think we're at the point, and perhaps um, perhaps it's just my limited imagination. And perhaps it's my limited vertical ability. Um, I can't really see AI as, as like really intelligence, right? just really I, I think I'm stuck in technology and what that's doing. But I think, and I hope. That we have the ability to create things where, where we are allowed to be human beings, not human doings, and that can be the focus. So however we can get there using the value systems that we have in places, individuals or to whichever society and culture we ascribe, of which many of us have overlapping ones, right? For me, you know, uh, feminist and um, Jewish and American and all that stuff, right? Like overlapping, but what what are my values therein and how can I use this technology and the AI to allow me to be a human being, not just a human doing? And in that way, um, sort of living up to this idea that I myself, so there's a, a Zionist named Ahad Ha'am, which actually he changed his name and it translates to one people. That's what that translates to, Ahad Ha'am. He was writing in the late uh, late 19th, early 20th century, and he was defining the difference between sacred and profane. And that which is profane is a means to an end. And when you get to the end, the object itself loses its meaning and the sacred is that which the object itself can be used in lots of different ways to achieve many different ends and is is by itself by its nature holy and for me that's what I want for the human being not just the human doing not that I am here to do something to do a job to do this that and the other but to be and there, in that being, using the AI to create and imbue holiness in the self, in whatever job we're in, whether that's in religion, whether that's in academia, or any myriad of other fields that we've sort of we've sort of touched on, and when we're able to then bridge AI and religion in those ways, we can see ourselves as holy.
3: That's 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 my sort of you
1: know rainbow in the sky hope. <laughs>
3: Uh, what you're saying, Rachel, um, <laughs> about bridging those those things is reminding me of um, – and, and this sort of ties back to the conversation earlier about um, religion and AI and, like, the funerals of robots and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, um, a late 19th century anthropologist, E.B. Tyler. If you study religion, you probably know him. Um, there's lots of, like – Problematic issues we could talk about with them, but the what he was writing about at that time was about animism, and um, had this uh, idea that animism is like the original religion, and that it was also like a central uh, characteristic of what he called a quote unquote primitive uh, religions. And so that's where we can like talk about <laughs> like colonialism and all that stuff. But the the idea of what he's talking about is that. Um, there is like this development of religion where you start out as being animistic, which if you don't know, animism is like basically put a uh, life or seeing that there's life or like a soul in inanimate objects or in things besides humans. So thinking that the river has a spirit and the trees and the rocks have spirits. And so this is what Tyler's talking about, but um, it, it it's interesting to me because i I was thinking, you know, even though someone like Tyler or you know other anthropologists and people who would say, like, oh, only primitive religions have uh, animism or this idea of like life and soul and inanimate objects or like having these childish attachments to things. Um, what we know or like what you know if you study religion is that that has nothing to do with like, um, this like line of progress where like the more advanced modernized religions uh, don't have attachments or don't have these ideas of life and spirit in uh, nature or other inanimate objects. And uh, I think like the prime like piece of evidence for that right now in this conversation is that, you know, we can have like be looking at the most like technologically advanced places, and we're talking about how we like throw a, a funeral or some other kind of celebration for our robot friend, and um, that it's just like this human impulse to relate to the world around us, and um, there's nothing that's like primitive about <laughs> that, whether whether it's like animism in the traditional sense or. Um, what we're talking about now, where we're relating to things in this new way um, as technology changes, um, you know, our best friends are going to be robots one day. And <laughs> it just is like so interesting to, to see how humans are continually coming up with ways to relate to the world around us. Uh, hmm. So that's what I was thinking. About.
0: Uh, yeah, it's the final words of, of uh, the Opportunity Rover that
1: yeah, exactly. struck a
0: chord around the world oh, that
1: yes you
0: know the opportunity rover went for 15 years mm-hmm. on mars way longer than it was supposed to the little rover that could and then one final dust storm covered the as far as we know covered it up and you know the it's just sending telemetry data back and you know just the battery is dying and whatnot and somebody on twitter wrote the last message they received was basically my battery is low and it's getting dark. Dark, And And that phrase then like went around the world. My battery is low and it's getting dark. I've seen that tattooed on people. I've seen so many t-shirts and mugs and like that little rover with its little solar panels just alone on on this distant cold planet. My battery is low and it's getting dark. And there was like this worldwide mourning for this little little rover guy that will one day, I'm sure, be in a museum. And those words, I hope, will be inscribed on it so that the- we know that, like, this is a human connection. This isn't just a religion thing. This is yeah. a human mm-hmm. connection.
1: All the feels right there. Yeah. Rest in peace. Rest That's in right. peace. <laughs> yeah,
0: and rest or- in peace, Hitchbot. Whose final tweets... We,
1: we will find your Your, <laughs> your <kid> head.
0: <laughs> and avenge them.
1: Avenge your death.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Hitchbot. Hitchbot wouldn't want it that way. Hitchbot's final tweets, tweets, by the way, were August 1st, 2015. Oh dear, my body was damaged. <laughs> <laughs> but I live on with all of my friends. Sometimes, I don't
3: know why that one's funnier to me.
0: <laughs> sometimes bad things happen to good robots. <laughs> And then a little bit later posted a picture of itself with its with its creators and said my trip must come to an end for now but my love for humans will never fade thank you friends
3: it's Maybe your dark. love should fade little little buddy
0: Oh no Hitchbot is the best of us
3: <sighs> Well yeah our battery have is low
0: stay out of Philly well, just wait a few years when Hitchbot the White comes up and saves us all from the evil forces having battled the Balrog of Philadelphia.
1: <laughs> to be considered. No? To niche? All right.
0: <laughs> no, Till next
1: time. <laughs>